still making our way to the creeds and confessions in the early church. And uh, to do that, let's uh, just kind of review a little bit. Regarding orthodoxy's early development, we talked about four different views of development. Development by accommodation, development by evolution, development by power, and development by continuity. And for each of these, we kind of connected a name in uh, historical theology uh, to these different movements. Uh, development by accommodation, where the church basically accommodates itself to the Hellenistic or Greek culture that's around it. Uh, we looked at the theologian, German liberal theologian Adolf von Harnack with that. Uh, the concept of development by evolution, uh, that uh, gospel kind of comes in seed form, but then grows and develops and becomes, in some sense, uh, something that it's kind of not uh, what it starts as and what it grows to become kind of almost distinct things. And we talked about this in regard to the teaching of John Henry Newman, uh, the Anglo-Catholic turned Roman Catholic Cardinal Newman. We talked about development by power, where the guys that win are the ones that write the history. And here we looked at Walter Bauer, the German theologian from the early 20th century, and recently his thesis, or late 19th, early 20th, and recently his theses, his views, that um, the, uh, <clears throat> there were many Christianities. There was no actual thing called orthodoxy. There were just multiple views. Uh, what, what Bart Ehrman has called multiple Christianities. And there was no real uh, orthodox contender early on. And eventually... Uh, the ones that gained the power kind of uh, crushed all opposition, and this comes in the things like the creeds and the councils in the 4th and 5th centuries. Finally, we looked at development by continuity, and this was expressed by the teaching of Orthodox theologian John Baer, uh, and we'll review his view here in just a moment. All right? Um, <clears throat> the theology, this is from Kruger and Kostenberger's book on the heresy of orthodoxy. Uh, summing up John Baer's view, the theology that emanated from the New Testament continued through the church fathers and was guarded by the apologists and solidified in the ecumenical church councils. This represents a continuous, uninterrupted stream. The theology espoused by the orthodox clarified, elucidated, and expounded the theology of the New Testament without deviating from it creeds accurately represent the essence of the apostolic faith. Now, <clears throat> that was the idea of orthodoxy's uh, soil. It's going to grow out of that. And then we talked about orthodoxy's unifying parameters. And we, um, excuse me, uh, the three things about the parameters, the soil, the protection, and the flowering. Now, this is the section that we're on. We're going to be talking about flowering today. Um, the soil of orthodoxy, we find that it's rooted in the consistent teaching of the apostles. It's protected by the formation of the New Testament canon, and it flowers in the continuity of what we're going to call the rule of faith among the church fathers. Looking at the soil of the consistent teaching of the apostles, we spoke about how the early church is never without a canon. They always had a Bible, if you will. They always had the Old Testament, right? 
Think of Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is what? Profitable. God breathed. Profitable for the man of God. Good for doctrine, approved, correction, training, and righteousness. The man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. So they had that. Secondly, the preaching and teaching of the apostles. You think of Acts chapter 2. The early church devoted itself to the teaching of the apostles. And they are expounding uh, the Old Testament scripture as fulfilled in Christ. Number three, there is an early conscious awareness that the writings and teachings of the apostles bore canonical weight. You might recall in 2 Timothy chapter or 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter compares the writings of the Apostle Paul to the other scriptures, the scriptures of the Old Testament. Fourth, the centrality and primacy of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ uh, came and died and was buried and rose and appeared. Fifth, apostolic agreement in the gospel. We look there at Galatians chapter 2 where Peter and Paul have the right hand of fellowship that they give to one another where Peter would take the gospel to the circumcised and Paul would take the same gospel to the uncircumcised. And number six, the practical use of this apostolic instruction in weighing competing claims. So they would use the teaching of the apostles to to fend off or to guard off any competition that would come along. So the idea that in the early church it was just a bunch of different Christianities and they all were accepted, they all had kind of equal weight, nobody had a, an upper hand, uh, doesn't fit with the data of the New Testament. I know we're going quickly here, but we need to get on to um, our, our task today. But we looked briefly at orthodoxy's protection, the formation of the canon. If you have a handout that you would have picked up from the table in the front, um, or the same handout we had last week, some of the quotes we looked at uh, are on there. You can, you can read back over those. Okay, so that's kind of where we've been, where, we're, where we've been over the last several studies together. Any questions? Just kind of pause for a moment. Questions or comments kind of up to this point? All right. Well, let's move on and let's think about orthodoxy's Flowering. So we're continuing this garden image. Uh, orthodoxy is rooted uh, in that rich apostolic soil. It is protected and guarded by that developing canon, and it begins to flower. And here we're going to look at what we call the continuity of the rule of faith among the fathers. Right? Um, <clears throat> recall again the words of John Bear that the theology or the doctrine of the New Testament was continued through the fathers, guarded by the apologists, and solidified in the ecumenical church councils, this represents a continuous, uninterrupted stream. So think about that stream for a moment. There are three different groups of individuals to kind of consider. The church fathers. These are bishops slash elders in the early church period, probably the, up to the close of the first century into the early part of the second century. 
Then we come to a group known as the apologists, men who were often bishops also and elders who specifically engaged in defending the faith against opponents. Uh, You've probably heard of men like Justin Martyr or Justin the Martyr. Um, You've heard of uh, Tertullian. You've heard of Irenaeus. These are men who are um, uh, often considered apologists in the early church. There are also bishops or pastors, but um, they are often considered apostles or apologists. Thirdly, the councils. And the councils we haven't gotten to yet, there are four primary councils. We're going to be talking about the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381, uh, the Council of Ephesus in 431, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And hopefully we'll be getting into those in the coming weeks. But all those things kind of working together uh, give the church uh, that environment, if you will, in which orthodoxy begins to flower. Right? Um, the carrying forward of sound theology of the New Testament period is done by the oversight of men put in positions of responsibility in regard to the church's doctrine and life, these bishops or elders in local churches. Two things we want to talk about in regard to these men and the rule of faith is one, the developing role of the bishop, the developing role of the bishop, and secondly, the preserving role of what we call the rule of faith. Now this might get us into two areas which, just looking at the screen, you're thinking, sounds odd. We don't call our pastors bishops, all right? Um, We have not put that in the bulletin yet. Bishop Ryan, Bishop Jason, all right? Uh, Nor will we, all right? Uh, Probably mainly, though, because of the the, the ramifications of that, or the, 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 it tends to confuse rather than actually clarify. So we just refer to ourselves as pastors, all right? But in the Bible, a bishop is a pastor. A pastor is a, a bishop, all right? An elder is a pastor. An elder is a bishop, all right? And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But there is a developing role in the early church for the first three, 400 years where the bishop becomes kind of a focal point for sound doctrine, He takes on a very strong position in bringing continuity to the faith in those early years of the church. And then there's another thing called the rule of faith. And you think, what what is that? Um, The preserving role of the rule of faith. How does it it serve to protect and help the church? So let's talk about these two things just a little bit. Obviously, we're going to bounce around a little bit there. We're going to keep bouncing around. We're going to get there. All right. The developing role of of the bishop. Let's look at, I think, four different things, all right? Number one, the plurality of elders or bishops in the early church. The plurality of elders or bishops in the early church. Consistent with what we find in the scripture, the early church, after the period of the apostles, continued to practice the appointment of a plurality of elders that would have been seen as synonymous with bishops in that early church period. We find between the New Testament writings and the writings of men known as the apostolic fathers, those who immediately followed the apostles, a consistent practice from Jerusalem to Rome. Now, we've mentioned a New 
phrase here or term, the apostolic fathers. Sometimes when we talk about uh, those, those men who led the church in those first several hundred years, we just call them church fathers. Sometimes we can distinguish them also. We can call them apostolic fathers, apologists, and church fathers. And the apologists or the, the apostolic fathers are men, they're not apostles. They didn't even necessarily know the apostles. Several of them may very well have known the apostles. For example, Polycarp is an apostolic father, right, who most likely was a disciple of John the Apostle. Right? Although we depend upon extra-biblical material to kind of substantiate that, so it becomes a little difficult to prove. But these men that we often call apostolic fathers, they live in the period right after the apostles. And their lives could have intersected either directly or maybe just by way of hearing about them. Right? Uh, and they stretch somewhere up into the early years of the second century. I want you to think about the writings of the New Testament and the writings of some of these apostolic fathers. If you... Uh, well, there's not time to kind of turn to each one of these. Let me just mention a few. Um, we find the consistent practice of the early church showing that elders and bishops are appointed in a plurality in each church, and they're also seen as the same individual. All right? Judea and Jerusalem. We're just going to kind of work out geographically here. Jerusalem and Judea, in Acts 11, verse 30. We'll turn there. Acts 15, verse 6, and in James 5, verse 14, we find bishops or elders being used in those particular texts as referring to the same individuals. Syria, or possibly Egypt, an early writing of the Apostolic Fathers known as the Didache, some some of you may be familiar with that. In the Didache, in chapter 15, in verse 1, there is a reference to elders, bishops, being used interchangeably. In Galatia, modern-day Turkey, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul says that they went and they appointed elders in all the churches. In Asia Minor, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, there we find bishop or episkopos, an overseer, and elder, or presbyteros, or a presbyter, and poimen, the idea of a shepherd or a pastor, being used interchangeably for the same individual. In fact, in that particular section, Peter calls himself a fellow elder with the other elders. He doesn't just declare his apostolic position, he calls himself an elder. In Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, we find Paul calling in Acts chapter 20 the elders to meet him in Miletus, but then when Paul writes to Timothy, who is one of the elders or pastors in Ephesus, he refers to the appointment of men over the church using the term bishop or overseer. Also, in Corinth, now I'm not going to use 1 Corinthians here. I'm going to use a book known as Clement. Clement was a bishop or pastor or elder in the church in Rome toward the close of the 1st century, early 2nd century 
and Clement in his letter in chapter 42, verse 4, and then in chapter 44, verses 3 to 6, speaks about the interchange, speaks about elders, bishops, pastors, uses these phrases interchangeably. Then in Rome, referring to their own congregation in Rome, in 1 Clement 42 and 44, they also speak in the same fashion. Another early writing of the church, known as the Shepherd of Hermas, the Shepherd of Hermas, which is a very interesting uh, letter. It's, it's a vision, actually. And some in the early church, if you've studied about the history of the canon, some in the early church thought the Shepherd of Hermas should have been a canonical book. I'm not saying it should have been. I don't think it should have been. But I think we have the books we're supposed to have, all right? But the Shepherd of Hermas, in a vision, in section 3.5.1, you can look that up later, um, speaks in the same fashion, again, interchangeably about elders and bishops and pastors. And then Paul, in Titus chapter 1, remember Paul has left Titus on the little isle of Crete. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, it speaks about the appointment of elders to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those that contradict. So in all of these geographical areas and all these different writings, apostolic writings, and then post-apostolic writings of the church fathers, we see somewhat of a unified picture that in the early church there were pluralities of men that were appointed as elders, shepherds, bishops, pastors of local churches. Now there is one exception. It's a very important exception. There is one exception to this consistent practice of the fathers, and that is of Ignatius. Ignatius. Ignatius is the bishop of Antioch. He is one of the most influential of the early church fathers. He is the singular bishop of Antioch. He serves the church in Antioch with another group of men that they, he refers to as presbyters, or elders, and he also serves with deacons. But he serves as the sole bishop. Now, when you hear that, you should note in your mind that this bishop was considered by Ignatius, when he thought of a bishop, he's thinking of a bishop of a singular church. He is not thinking of a bishop of a geographical area. He's not thinking of one bishop that's over other bishops. See that, that if you're thinking ahead, that's what's going to develop, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it, it's it's seen in the Episcopal Church. All right, the idea of rule by bishops. All right, and bishops are given kind of a geographical area over which to be in charge. Ignatius's view is different. When he speaks of a bishop, he is speaking of a bishop of a singular church, joined by a plurality of elders and also deacons appointed to serve the congregation. His idea of the bishop is in no way apostolic, meaning that each bishop was not given power over other bishops in some limited geographical area or over the whole of the church, developing later in both the East and the West, and in the West we see it primarily in the papacy. Now, though his view is not apostolic, his view of the bishop's office was, to say the least, high. He had a high view of the office 
of the bishop. He didn't have a low view necessarily of the presbytery. He, he elevated the elders and the deacons in the church to a high view of office in the church, but his view of the bishop was high. Hear this statement from his letter. I don't know if this is printed for you uh, in your quotations there, um, but this is from uh, one of his letters uh, that he writes to the church in Smyrna. Uh, Ignatius writes seven letters, and we have all of his letters, and they're well worth the time to read. They're, you know, don't sit there and say, oh, he thought bishops were over elders, therefore I'm not going to read him, all right? You know, he's a brother, <laughs> and he was a very wise man, and he wrote wonderful letters to six different churches and to one man. He writes uh, six letters to churches, one of which is um, the, uh, the church in Smyrna, over which a man named Polycarp was the bishop. So Polycarp is the bishop of Smyrna. But in his letter to the church in Smyrna, he says this about the bishop, and he's exhorting the congregation. He says, see that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbytery, as you would the apostles, and reverence the deacons, as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything, and hear this next phrase, let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. He's not saying you can't do anything. He's not saying the bishop has authority over every area of your life. He says, let no man do anything um, connected with the church without the bishop. He goes on, let that be deemed a proper Eucharist or a I think the Eucharist, the, the giving of thanks, that's what they would refer to the Lord's Supper. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by the one to whom he has entrusted it. So if the bishop goes out of town, he can appoint one of the presbyters or one of the elders to oversee the Lord's Supper so the people aren't without that as a means of grace. Um, but they can't just kind of willy-nilly do whatever they want to do. He says, whenever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be. Even as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. It is not lawful without the bishop either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast. But whosoever he shall approve of, that is also pleasing to God, so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. Those are the two things at the end he says. We want it to be secure. The, the bishop is going to oversee things. He's going to watch over to make sure it's safe. And he's going to give some type of validity to it. All right, It wasn't just like, you know, hey, we were out in the woods one day with a couple of families having a great time camping over the weekend, couldn't make it to church, and somebody had some juice and crackers. And so we thought we'd just have the Lord's Supper. All right, Ignatius would say, <clears throat> that's not valid. I would agree. It's not um, now, we can, we can take apart his quote, and we can critique things, and we can say, well, we have a different view about the bishop. I understand that. But I'm simply wanting to understand historically how things are beginning to move. All right? This threefold pattern of bishop, elders, and deacons, according to Everett Ferguson, became the general pattern for the church by the mid-2nd century. That's about where we are. About 150, that's the pattern for the church. 
By the close of the second century, however, the position of the bishop had solidified and become strengthened in the writings and labors of another man by the name of Irenaeus. This moves us to a third stage. Let me just pause. Any questions up to that point? Michael. That's a good question. No, actually, they would probably still, by this particular point, be meeting in homes. Uh, we, we don't see much evidence of, like, you know, the early church meeting, like, in city structures or something like that. Um, in that first and second century, they're probably usually meeting in homes. I think one of the earliest um, archaeological uh, places that we find is in the later part of the third century. Uh, it's in Syria. It's a little town known as Dura Europa. Uh, you can look it up later online. It's fascinating. They have dug up a house that's been converted into a church building, and this is mid to late third century. And in that house that's converted kind of for the use of a church, they have a, uh, a room for catechumens, those who are coming to be baptized, and a baptistry in that room. Uh, they have a, uh, a, a major, a, like a large meeting room where they have like where a pulpit would have been toward the front where they would have had some teaching going on. And then they have another room off to the side that looks like they would have had uh, like like teaching the catechumens, and then they would have moved into the baptismal room. What's fascinating about that is that in the baptismal room, all over the walls are all these kinds of images that are painted, biblical stories, all right? Uh, the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda, Jesus you know, lifting the man up, uh, the ladies going to the empty tomb, and they're going, you know, early in the morning they have candlesticks or whatever in the, in the picture. Um, but in the place where they would meet for worship, there's no art, which is kind of fascinating to me. And uh, Dura Europa, I think it's around 262 AD, something like that. That's where they're, they're estimating the date. So yeah, by this time, they're still meeting in homes. And um, I'm trying to think of, we haven't talked about the idea of persecution. I think we talked about it a little bit on the, on the podcast, if you happen to listen to that. Um, there is not a huge, widespread persecution of Christians uh, across the empire in the mid-second century. Uh, it's very localized, if there is persecution going on. Uh, we do get widespread geographical persecution later, but at that particular point in time, they're meeting, they're meeting in homes. They may have to be creative on finding times to meet because it's still not a day, still not a place where the, the Lord's Day is gonna be you know, honored and, and businesses closed and things like that. Many of them are slaves and would have been able, unable to, uh, to meet during the day. By the, mid, by the mid-second century, the, the threefold breakdown of bishop, elders, and deacons is commonplace in the church. Yeah. Not a bishop over a geographical area, but a, but a bishop over one particular church. Now, that's going to change in the history of the church. But, um, all right. Well, let's look at step three just a little bit here. All right. Um, <clears throat> Ignatius had made his argument for the primacy of the bishop due to the appointment of that office by the apostles. Ferguson's no, Ferguson notes, and Everett Ferguson is a church historian, uh, in my opinion, uh, a great patristic scholar in that regard. 
Um, Ferguson notes that this is simply a succession of office according to the pattern established by the apostles. In other words, this bishop is not a new apostle. Now, later on, we're going to get what's called apostolic succession in the Roman Catholic Church, and those who have that succession of office hold the authority of the apostles over the whole of the church. Um, This becomes for Ignatius a great strength in his work as an apologist, fighting those who claim an apostolic connection. Now, picking up on this is a man by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus is the bishop of Lyon in France in the latter part of the second century. And Ignatius, or Irenaeus, excuse me, Irenaeus is fighting off a group of individuals often known as the Gnostics in a uh, a five-part work known as Against Heresies. And the Gnostics came along and claimed an apostolic connection. So Irenaeus also comes along and uses this idea of an apostolic connection to fend off the Gnostics. Let's see. Here's an example of how he does it. Again, this may or may not be on your sheet. He says, Such presbyters does the church nourish, of whom also the prophet says, I will give you rulers in peace and your bishops in righteousness. Isaiah 60, verse 17. Of whom also did the Lord declare, Who then shall be a faithful steward, good and wise, whom the Lord sets over his household to give them their meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Quoting from Matthew 24, 45 to 46. Paul then, teaching us where one may find such, says... God has placed in the church first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Where, therefore, the gifts of the Lord have been placed, there it behooves us to learn the truth. Did you hear that? This is is what Irenaeus is saying. Where, therefore, the gifts of the Lord have been placed, there it behooves us to learn the truth. Namely, from those who possess that succession of the church, which is from the apostles, and among whom exists that which is sound and blameless in conduct, as well as that which is unadulterated and incorrupt in speech. For these, these these teachers, also preserve this faith of ours in one God who created all things. And they increase that love which we have for the Son of God who accomplished such marvelous dispensations for our sake. And they expound the scriptures to us without danger, neither blaspheming God, nor dishonoring the patriarchs, nor despising the prophets. Because these men have a succession of office, not in the sense that they are the apostles, but they are the ones with whom the deposit has been made. Paul and Timothy. What does Paul tell Timothy over and over? Guard the what? Guard the deposit. Uh, Guard the, the, the form of sound words that's been given to you. He doesn't go and tell Timothy, Timothy, flex your muscle. Timothy, you are now me. I'm going to die, but you're now an apostle. He doesn't say that. He says, to you has been given what? This good deposit, this truth. Guard this, keep this. And then he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, the things that you've heard do what? Well, imitate me, yes. But in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, pass these on to what? Faithful men who will be able to teach others. So it's Paul to Timothy, to other men, to the other men that they teach. It is not a succession of apostolic 
office or apostolic authority. It's a succession of teaching. And that doctrine goes on. Now, the bishops are called, and the elders with them are called to oversee the perpetuity of that, the continuity of that. But this is what's happening here with Irenaeus. Now, one final point needs to be seen in a fourth stage, all right? Developed apostolic succession and the collective episcopate. We're getting closer here. You might think in your mind, this is sounding really Catholic. We're getting closer in the history of the church to what becomes apostolic succession. Now, this comes with a man by the name of Cyprian. Cyprian is the bishop of Carthage in North Africa. You might think North Africa has some really influential men over the years. There's Cyprian, there's Tertullian, who is in Carthage, all right, Northern Africa, still Western Church, all right, um, and a rather famous individual, a leader in the church, a few centuries later, is also from this area of Northern Africa, the Carthage area. What's his name? Augustine, yeah, exactly. So Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, in the mid-3rd century, moving into a solidified position in the 4th century, Cyprian saw the bishops of all the churches. Now, kind of listen to this and screw your head down really tight on it. Cyprian sees the bishops of all the churches as a collective whole. And they are integral in maintaining the unity of the church, and the continuity of the faith. One of his most well-known treaties is entitled On the Unity of the Church, written on the occasion of what's known as the Novatian Schism in the mid-3rd century, relating the matter of what to do with Christians who lapsed during the Decian persecution. There was a widespread persecution in the church in the 3rd century under Emperor Decius in 250-251, And many of these people, um, they either surrendered the scriptures or they denied the faith. And then after the persecution, they did that to avoid being put to death. And then after the persecution is over, they come back to the church in sorrow and repentance. What do you do with them? Do you let them back in? Or do you kind of keep them out? Some were of the mind that said things like, well... We can forgive them, but we can't let them back in the church. If God wants to let them back in the church, he'll do that after they die. So they can be out of the church until they die. Um, Kind of a poor application of Matthew 18. You know, if your brother repents, forgive him. But that's another conversation, all right? So in this work on the unity of church, Cyprian espouses a view of the bishops where they stand as a collective body. And in this body of bishops, the collective unity of the church is maintained. Here's one of the comments that he makes. Cyprian on the unity of the church. There is only one concrete visible body, only one communion, which is the church. That true and only church which the Lord established through the apostles. For Cyprian, this unity is not ideal but actual. It cannot be broken. And it is a unity with or around a structure, the episcopate and the apostolic church, the succession of the bishop in each local church. Outside the succession, there is no church. So the bishops are seen as a collective body that the church itself is represented in the collection of the bishops. 
And you're thinking, that doesn't sound very Baptist. You're right, it's not Baptist. But it's what Cyprian believed. All right? And this is, this is leading us into uh, a later period that will become more clear as we talk about the actual councils. So, for example, at the Council of Nicaea, the only people that can participate in the discussion at the Council of Nicaea in 325 are the bishops. They're the only guys allowed at the table. There are others there. There are elders there. There are deacons there. There may be just regular old folk there, right? The only ones making the decisions are the bishops. Um, okay. These are four stages about the developing role of the bishop. Yeah, Paul? To say that none would would, have, would be overstating the point. Uh, to say that that's what that meant, it's a collective understanding, I think that would also overstate. Um, it's a church rooted in the doctrine and teaching of the apostles, taking us back to the apostles. And um, maybe we'll revisit that phrase here in a few weeks when we actually get to look at the Nicene Creed a little bit. And... Um, all right, well, let's talk for a moment here about the continuity of the rule of faith, the preserving role of the rule of faith. The rule of faith as a weapon in the hands of the bishops to fight off heresy and preserve the teaching or tradition of the apostles. This, this is referred to in different ways in various writings of the fathers. They'll call it the rule of faith, the canon of truth, the canon of the church. Some will call it the ecclesiastical rule. I think we'll see a quote uh, using such verbiage here in a moment. There's a helpful little book on this. I left it at home, uh, written by Everett Ferguson, simply called The Rule of Faith. It's about a $10 book. You can get it on Kindle. You can get a little copy of it. And he goes through and examines the writings of the early fathers wherever he finds these phrases, right? Trying to show what they're, what they're trying to get at with that. Richard Muller, in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, gives this helpful definition of the rule of faith or the regula fide. He says, in the early church, the regula fide, the rule of faith, is the creedal expansion of the baptismal formula used to define the apostolic tradition of faith against the Gnostics. Again, the Gnostics are trying to line out. Gnosticism is a heresy that rises to prominence there in the 2nd and 3rd century. The church is often combating Gnostic influences. Gnosticism comes from that Greek term gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics held to kind of a secret or specially spiritually imparted knowledge aside from the scripture. Uh, they're like, you can have the Bible, that's fine. But we have this special knowledge. Would have done really good on modern-day television, right? All right? And uh, God gave me a word. You can have the Bible all you want, but God gave, God gave me a word. Um, <clears throat> when a young person or an older person would come to faith in Christ and they're being schooled and taught the fundamentals of the faith, um, they would then confess what they would believe, like at their baptism, for example. Right? And 
this rule of faith serves as this, uh, this understanding that will kind of carry on this apostolic tradition. And the, the rule of faith as it grows and develops and becomes more clear uh, takes this baptismal type formula and begins to expand it and define it, eventually resulting in the creeds right, that are used in the early church. Let's, let's look at how some of the early writers, and uh, that's on your piece of paper. Aren't you happy? All right. It's on your piece of paper. So if you've got that sheet of paper, I want you to look with me um, at, a, at a couple of phrases here, a couple of statements that are made. This first one here is taken from Irenaeus' work against heresies regarding the content of the rule. I think this is, a, this is an excellent um, kind of summary for us. It comes out of Book 1, Chapter 10, Paragraph 1, under the heading, The Unity of the Faith of the Church Throughout the Whole World. Let's just read through this and hear it. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection from the dead and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father to gather all things in one, and to raise up anew all flesh of the human race, in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess to him, and that he should execute just judgment towards all, and that he may send spiritual wickedness, and the angels who transgressed and became apostates together with the ungodly and unrighteous and wicked and profane among them into everlasting fire, but may in the exercise of his grace confer immortality on the righteous and holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love, some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance and may surround them with everlasting glory. It almost sounds like the Nicene Creed as you begin reading, all right? This gives a sweeping picture of apostolic doctrine. It speaks of the Father, speaks of the Son, speaks of the Holy Spirit. It's very Trinitarian. It speaks of the incarnation of the Son, why he comes. It speaks of future judgment and future salvation. This is from Irenaeus. Clement of Alexandria, in a writing known as the Stramata, it is referred to as the ecclesiastical tradition. Let me see if I have that up here on the screen. Um, no, it's not there. We'll come back to that. All right. He refers to it as the ecclesiastical tradition, but this tradition is understood to be derived from the scriptures themselves and not some separate tradition of men or as Clement says, quote, the opinions of heretical men. The tradition of which he speaks is that which is found, quote, on hearing the scriptures and by turning one's, quote, life to the truth. I think I may have had that up here. Yeah, the tradition is to be understood from scriptures themselves, not a separate tradition 
of men. Anything separated from the scripture is seen as some kind of human tradition and leading to erroneous things. Um, Rather, we should turn our lives to the truth. This is from a writing known as the Stromata, uh, chapter 16. All right. Um, Let's move on, and uh, we'll talk about one more. Any any questions? Just pause for a second. All right. I'm sorry? Their creed be based upon scriptural truth. Yeah. And this, this is why it helps to think of the study we had a few weeks ago. When we talked about the developing canon. We don't have to wait until after the fourth council to get the content of the canon. All right. Uh, around 180, the moratorium fragment, 22 of the 27 New Testament books we have. Somewhere in mid-third century, Origen speaks about the 27 books that we have in our New Testament and he speaks about him in his sermon there, that homily number seven on Joshua. He speaks about him as if, yeah, everybody agrees with this. He's not trying to, like, defend it. He's not trying to, like, argue for it. He's just throwing it out there, all right? If I was preaching a sermon and I thought everybody listened to me had a contrary view, if I thought everybody listening to me was going to discount everything I said, I'd spend time arguing for that. I'd, I'd spend, like, you know, here's 20 minutes of argumentation against the objector that's out there. Um, he doesn't do that. He's just stating what's accepted in that regard. Not that there weren't a few books, like, for example, Second uh, Peter, Second Third John, uh, Hebrews. Uh, some of these books are contested, and some of these books are seen as they're, they're lacking full acceptance geographically across the church in the Mediterranean world there. But over time, it becomes very clear which, which of these books is... is uh, belonging in the canon. Matt? Stromata. It was an Italian dish. And it just came with some sauce. And <laughs> I cannot. I do not know. Yeah, that's a great question, but I don't know. It, but I do know it wasn't an Italian dish. That was just completely on the, on the fly. So. Any other questions about food, Italian food or whatever? Anybody hungry? All right. Let's look at this last one, all right? I think we only have one more. Yeah, so, but it's a long one, all right? And uh, it covers a couple screens here. And, uh, but I think you have it printed up for you there. And I really want to kind of focus in on some stuff here. Now, <clears throat> Irenaeus is writing against, again, the Gnostics. In particular, the Valentinian Gnostics. Valentinius was an early Gnostic teacher, and Irenaeus had a lot to say about him. All right? and those who would follow him. He says, how the Valentinians pervert the Scripture. Nope, wait, 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 wait. What do we got here? Is this the wrong one? Yeah, we're going to figure this out. Give me a second. Oh, I have the opening line. You don't have it. Here's the opening line. How the Valentinians pervert the Scriptures to support their own pious opinions. Now, begin on your sheet. Such then is their system, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, 
nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others they have a perfect knowledge. Now, this would be a perfect place for Irenaeus to come in and say, their system is not what the prophets announced, it's not what the Lord taught, it's not what the apostles delivered, and it's not what the ongoing revelatory tradition of the church has taught us. It's not what he says. He's rooting everything. He's writing this toward the close of the second century. It's 100, almost 130 years, perhaps, depending on when we think the apostles died. We're not always sure. Some think John might have died around 70. Some think John might have died toward the end of the first century. I tend to think all the, all the books of the New Testament are completed prior to the fall of the temple in AD 70. That's what I think, all right? Um, and some of you are thinking, oh, I know that you're right. I'm a partial preterist, you. Yeah, I see some smiles. Yes, exactly. Come talk to me later. Okay. But the point being, I think they're all written prior to AD 70, which, me, which would mean that it's 130 years later. Even if John writes Revelation in 96 AD, it's still 100 years later when he's writing this. Plenty of time for tradition to begin to develop alongside the Bible, right? He doesn't do that. He roots it all back in the Scripture. They, that is the Valentinians, gather their views from other sources than the Scriptures. Well, if there is tradition going alongside the Bible as a separate stream of revelation, then that would be valid. You see what happens there? That would be a valid way to get your knowledge. This is what Rome teaches. Rome teaches that there is Scripture, one stream, and parallel to it, there's tradition, not Tevia kind of tradition, but tradition, all right? And, he's, and, he, and it travels alongside, and these two streams of tradition are now overseen and interpreted by the magisterium, the pope and the bishops, the cardinals and the church, right? So if that's true, these two streams are equally valid, then to discount the Valentinians doing that would be kind of a silly way to argue they gather their views from other sources in the scriptures and use a common proverb. They strive to weave ropes of sand while they endeavor to adapt with an air of probability to their own peculiar assertions, the parables of our Lord, the sayings of the prophets, the words of the apostles, in order that their scheme may not seem altogether without support. So they have this extra stream of information they're getting out here, and then they try to make some kind of interesting connections to the biblical material to make it seem almost probable, all right? You ever had a conversation with the Mormon guy that comes to your door? The Jehovah's Witness guy that comes to your door? And it might as well be the Roman Catholic that comes to your door in this regard. Because he comes up with all kinds of doctrines that are not in the Bible whatsoever, and then tries to make these really amazing hermeneutical bridges to get back to the Bible to show you that this is in the Bible. I'm like, that's not in the Bible. Not even closely what that's trying to say. Even if we get really kind of crazy with the allegory, that's not what he's trying to say. And in that allegorical or spiritual interpretation of Scripture, which our own tradition affirms, all doctrine has to be rooted where? Back in the literal historical text, right? Now, <clears throat> so in doing so, when they try to make these fantastical connections with the Bible, in doing so, he says, however, they disregard the order and the connection of the scriptures. And so far as in them lies, notice this phrase, dismember 
and destroy the truth. They've got to pull apart the Bible to put it back together the way they, they want to to make this fit. By transferring passages and dressing them up anew and making one thing out of another, they succeed in deluding many through their wicked art and adapting the oracles of the Lord to their opinions. Such then is their system, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others they have a perfect knowledge. And this is the Gnosis idea, this Gnostic teaching. You know, we tongue-in-cheek... Um, mentioned about they could go on TV or whatever. Gnosticism has not died. And people in every age want to come along and say they have more knowledge than what was given in the Scripture. They gather their views from other sources than the Scriptures, and to use... Oh, I'm, I'm reading the same thing twice. Why am I doing that? I went from my paper. Okay, their manner. I want to make sure I don't miss that. I'm right in the middle of your quote. Hopefully you can find, everybody can find where I'm, their manner. Let's start there, sorry. Their manner of acting is just as if one, when a beautiful image of a king has been constructed with some skillful artist out of precious jewels, should then take the likeness of the man all to pieces, should rearrange the gems, and so fit them together as to make them into the form of a dog or of a fox or even but poorly and, and that even poorly executed. And should then maintain and declare that this was the beautiful image of the king, which the skillful artist constructed, pointing to the jewels which have been admirably fitted together by the first artist to form an image of a king, but have been with bad effect transferred to the latter one to the shape of a dog, and by this exhibiting the jewels should deceive the ignorant who had no conception of what a king's form was like, and persuade them that that miserable likeness of the fox in fact, the beautiful, is in fact the beautiful image of the king. In like manner do these persons patch together old wives' fables and then endeavor by violently drawing away from their proper connection words, expressions, and parables wherever found to adapt the oracles of God to their baseless fictions. I remember when I was my early 20s, I heard a statistic that was so troubling that the denomination that the Mormon church drew from more than any other to grow its church was Southern Baptists. Now, after 30 years later, I'm not shocked necessarily. But how do you do that? How do you go to somebody's house and begin to draw a picture of a different Jesus and sell these people that this is the Jesus of the Bible? It can only be done with someone who has not actually studied the Bible and doesn't actually have a clear picture of who Jesus is. And this happens all the time. This tactic happens all the time, where people who don't know the Word of God, they don't know sound doctrine, they get suckered in by some guy that comes along and has a great line, and it sounds so good, it looks so interesting, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And this is what's happening. The church utilizes the office of the bishop and a common grasp of the rule of faith or the ecclesiastical tradition or a, a, a formation of doctrine that, that, that begins to grow in that sense of clarity, eventually becoming, reaching kind of a creedal status in the early church, 
that protects it as these various groups come in to challenge that which is true. So this is a little bit of orthodoxy of how uh, it is developed, uh, its parameters, its protections, and how it flowers. Uh, the plan is to move next week, Lord willing, into what we call uh, the symbols of orthodoxy, and these symbols are creedal affirmations or creedal statements, and we'll talk about that word symbol and why that's a, why that's a word that's used. In the seconds we have left, any question, comment, whatever. All right. Well, I hope some of that is helpful, not just totally confusing, and Lord willing, we'll carry on with this.